My name is Steven. I am one of the preaching pastors here at Northwood Church, and I'm so excited to be here with you guys this morning. On behalf of our lead pastor, Jordan Decody, I want to extend a very, very uh, warm welcome to you. Uh, if you're watching online or Facebook Live or one of our cable broadcasts, welcome. We're glad that you're joining us. Uh, it is an incredible day, and uh, we're just going to have a great time today. We're, we're in the book of Romans, as you saw, and, and I want to share out of Romans today with you. But before I get into that, I want to take a moment to pay honor uh, to where honor is due. You know, our lead pastor, Jordan Decody, he is uh, a good, good friend of mine. He's one of my best friends, and I've spent a lot of time with him over the years. And, and in the last little while, I've spent more time than I ever have, uh, and, I, and I've, I've realized some things about Pastor Jordan, uh, and I think it's important that you know this, because uh, I think as, as we think about our lead pastor, it's good to know who he is. And, and I was preparing for Romans today, and I was thinking, I said, you know, this is one of the more difficult chapters to talk about, not just in Romans, but in all of the Bible. And I was thinking about our young lead pastor and his decision to lean into what many people for, for many years all across the church world have believed to be one of the, the books of the Bible that is most intimidating. And he said, you know what? being led by the Holy Spirit, he said, I want to lean into Romans because I don't want to just give our people, the people that we're responsible for leading, that which they want to hear, but I want to give them what they need to hear. And for him to make that decision, for him to say yes to the Lord in that leading, that requires a lot of boldness and a lot of courage. So right now, I just want to champion our lead, Pastor Jordan. Why don't you guys go ahead and give it up for Pastor Jordan right now? He's making a lot, of, a lot of difficult decisions and he's carrying a significant amount of weight over the last year. And I've, I've noticed that. And I also want to challenge you guys to continue to pray for your lead pastor. Uh, we all need to be praying for our lead pastor in this season as, as God's leading us into these, these new frontiers of ministry. And we're super excited about where we're at as a church. We're, we're one church with multiple locations. As you guys know, we're, we're heading out to Ocean Springs over the next year and that's super exciting. So there's a lot of things on the horizon and, and there's nothing more that not only our lead pastor, but the, the whole North Wood Church staff needs, uh, we need prayer. Uh, so continue to lift us up and that be faithful in that, and, I, and I appreciate you. Uh, so we are in the book of Romans today. Uh, super excited to get into this chapter. Uh, most of you who have been here with us uh, know that Romans is a book that was written by a man named Paul. Paul was a uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, and he was a church planter, and he planted a lot of churches all over the Mediterranean region. Now, he did not plant the church at Rome, but he did consider the church at Rome uh, uh, very important to him, and it was actually an important next step for him as he continued on his missionary journey. And he wanted to write a letter to the church at Rome to ensure that they had some clarity around a few key doctrines of the faith. That's just simply Christian teachings. He wanted to make sure that, that there weren't uh, a misunderstanding about what it is that Christ did and, and still wanted to do in their local body and, and, the, and the global church as a whole. And in the first four chapters of Romans, we see that Paul wrote and really wanted to, to help us understand this reality that, that God uh, is righteous and that against the backdrop of God's perfect righteousness, when we look at ourselves, we see a little bit of an imperfect uh, imperfect person. We see unrighteousness. And we, we heard a lot about that all through chapters one through four. And it might've been a little difficult to swallow at times. We kept hearing how, how much we are sinners and how, uh, how, how depraved maybe our minds are and how, how much we make mistakes. And we kept hearing that. But the awesome thing is that Paul also told us that we're justified or made right in the eyes of God 
God by grace through faith. And that happens in Christ Jesus. And, and so he showed us a way out. But uh, at the same time, we learned in chapters five and six, and we will continue to learn through chapter seven and eight, that God had created a new humanity through Jesus. We're new people. We're born again by his spirit. And then out of that, there's this thing that flows, this life of, of, of fruitfulness that flows out of that. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today in chapter 7 is based on that reality. Now, throughout the book of Romans, we hear about this thing called the law. The law. You guys have been reading along with us, right? And you keep, you keep stumbling across that phrase, the law this and the law that. What, what is Paul really referring to when he talks about the law. Well, Paul is referring to the commands and instructions for living that God gave to the Israelites in the Torah. And the law is really broken down into three categories. One uh, category, the first one I'll deal with is the civil law, which was ultimately established for order and peace. See, the nation of Israel was in bondage in a land called Egypt. They were slave, uh, enslaved for hundreds of years, many generations, and God wanted to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And he did so through Moses and a series of, of miracles. And it was an incredible uh, testimony of God's power and his love for his people. And, and, and then the reality of it is they found themselves in the wilderness. And though they were out of Egypt, Egypt wasn't out of them. And they didn't know how to live. So God wanted to give them some clarity for, for how to live their lives in what would be considered a, a civilized fashion. Uh, so this, this particular law expired with the demise of Israel. Israel's civil government because they were conquered again and they were exiled again. They wound up in Babylon and, and uh, we see that that civil law wound up expiring. The second law after the civil law will be the moral laws. Now, many of you have probably heard of these. These are the, the Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you've even seen some controversy because some courthouse uh, in some small city in some state wanted to keep the, the Ten Commandments on, their, on the courthouse yard or, or uh, maybe it was in the schools. And, and so you've heard about the Ten Commandments and those Ten Commandments are ultimately moral laws or, or, or laws that lead to righteous living that, that should give us boundaries for how we conduct our lives. Now, these laws have no expiration. The, the Ten Commandments are still relevant. And the reason they have no expiration is because they're based on God's character. See, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that which is based on his character will also be the same today, yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, the reality of it is that that a lot of us try to adhere to the Ten Commandments and that becomes the standard of our living. And I do need to let you know that even if you have perfect conduct, even if you think, though I know you are not because it is impossible, even if you think you have aligned your life perfectly around the Ten Commandments and that makes you secure, you're off because even if you have perfect conduct, your condition will not be perfect. God's more worried about the condition of your heart before he is the conduct. When trying to obey God's moral laws without first finding your faith in Jesus, the best you can hope for is moralism. When you trust in your behavioral modifications or the way that you conduct yourself, it will neither earn you right standing with God, nor will you experience the transformation of your heart that God desires for you to experience. And that ultimately is what God wants to deal with first, the condition of your heart. And you will fall short of God's righteousness. Now, thankfully, God gave his people a third form of law. And that's where we land on this next part, which is the ceremonial law. Now, the ceremonial law is this sacrificial law, and it has 
everything to do with being made righteous in the eyes of God. It has everything to do with uh, remedying the condition of our sinful nature, our sin heart. Now, the cool thing about the ceremonial law is that uh, one, it's, it's, it's very clear as to what the purpose of it was. So uh, in the Old Testament, they would have taken a pure and spotless lamb or, or some other form of animal, and they would have really cut that animal's neck and that animal would have bled out on um, an altar and that blood would have paid for and atoned for the sins of the nation, the sins of God's people. It covered it. And, and we know, and this is the best part, that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law by his work on his cross when he being a perfect and spotless lamb, when he was pierced and his blood poured out on Calvary and his blood atoned for or covered and purged the sins of a people, his people, for all of time, not just in that moment, not just for the future, but even retroactively, his, his blood covered the sins for thousands of years in the past and proactively covered the sins for however long he allows us to live in the future. This is an amazing reality. And, and really, that's what we're going to get into here in chapter 7, is understanding, one, what the, the law still is doing in our lives, and two, ultimately, how Christ fulfilled the law in our lives. So what I want you to do is open your Bibles, if you got them. Maybe open your notepad. You might have to shake some ink down in the bottom of your pen. Maybe it's been a little while since you've written, but we want you to lean in. We want you to get the most that you can get out of this. And uh, I think one of the best ways to do that is to follow along and maybe even take some notes. And you're going to find in chapter seven that Paul lays out this principle that we must be released from the law in order to be bound to Christ or unified with Christ. And as we prepare to get into chapter seven, I think we should pray and ask God to help us with his word. So Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. God, we are humbled that you have given us your word. We are honored that you want to make your word clear to us, God, and we want to be changed by your word. Holy Spirit, minister to the hearts of your people, including me, as we work through your word today. God, I am asking that you use your word to convict us, God, to, to, to change us, to inspire us, and to bring about transformation in our hearts. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting in chapter seven, verse one. And Paul says, do you not know brothers and sisters? For I am speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to Hebrew believers. Those are the ones who know the law. He says, for do you not know that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Now, Paul wants us to understand the law very clearly. And what he's going to do is use an illustration. He uses marriage to help us understand this aspect of the law. Now, this isn't a marriage teaching. That's not what these scriptures are about. So I don't want you to write down notes about what you need to do in your marriage coming out of this. This is, this is about your relationship to God and his law. And, uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you understand more about being bound first and then released from something. So in verse 2, it says, For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So we're seeing this picture ultimately of death leading to release, right? And he wants us to understand that when we are married to the law, we must die to the law. Not the law dying, but that we must die to the law so that we can ultimately be married to Christ. I know that might be hard for some of you men to hear. But 
God calls us the bride of Christ. That's the picture that we see in the Bible. And, and Jesus is the one to whom we want to be betrothed and married, unified with, the one who fulfilled the law. And we're going to see in verse four more about that. He says, so really in reference to my illustration, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. And he tells them how? Through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, that you might be married to or joined to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit from God. He said, we're going to live for the glory of God. He said, we're no longer going to live in a way that satisfies the fleshy desires that we have. We are going to live to bear fruit for God. And then in verse five, he goes to contrast two lifestyles. And it, it says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions which were basically aroused by the law were at work in us. So sinful passions were aroused by the law when we were uh, in the realm of the flesh. So you also learn that the law makes us aware of the sinful passion that is in us. And then what happens is that sin causes us to bear fruit for death. Verse six, but now by dying to what once bound us, or what we used to be married to, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. You can underline that. We serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we don't just live by the written code. We don't just live by the letter of the law anymore. I got the 10 commandments memorized. I'm doing good. You know, that can start coming off like a list of do's and don'ts. And on some levels, especially for a guy like me, I'm not thrilled with lists of do's and don'ts. <laughs> um, I do think that when I was first starting to hear about the things of God, uh, while some men were, were faithful to, to present God well to me, others might have missed the mark on some levels. And I got the impression that Christianity might have had more to do with being a list of do's and don'ts than it did relationship. And I thought that I had to clean myself up before I could come to God. And I have a feeling that some of you in this room might, right now might feel the same way. And I just want to let you know that that's not what Christianity is about. That's not what Christ came to do on the cross. That's not what he has for you. You're gonna hear more about what he does have for you. See, we live by the spirit of the law, which interestingly does happen to be a higher standard than the, word, the letter of the law, okay? So you start thinking, well, okay, a higher standard. I, I thought trying to adhere to the 10 commandments was hard enough. I'm gonna get there. What do I mean by that? Well, the law says you shall not commit adultery, right? You guys have heard that. Well, Jesus said, not only should you not commit adultery, you should not even lust upon another woman or look upon another woman with lust. You should not even allow those thoughts to, to have place in your mind. And, and that is much greater a standard than actually following through and committing adultery, okay? Now, it sounds again like another do or a don't, doesn't it? It's like, well, Jesus just told me what not to do. So I thought you said it wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. Well, there's still things that we're not supposed to do. And there's still things that we're supposed to do. There, there is a standard of living that God wants to raise up for his people. But at the same time now, that do or that don't, because we live in the way of the spirit, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have Christ in us. His law is in us. It's written on our hearts. And we no longer have to go back to the checklist to make sure we're living right. Did I, did I get that one? Did I? No, it's inside of us and it just flows out of us because we are his. 
And that is much easier than living according to a list of do's and don'ts, don't you think? It can only be attained by the work of Christ in us. Verse seven says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And Paul, in Paul fashion, says, certainly not. You out your mind. No, the law is not sinful. And we got to ask this question. How can something that reflects the character and nature of God be bad? There's, there's no way. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So all of a sudden we feel a little tension because he's starting to point to the law and what the law is doing in us. And it gets a little confusing. Here we see the law is personified, personified as a teacher, ultimately, that is speaking to Paul. And Paul agrees with the teacher. The teacher showed him what coveting was. Paul sees and understands now what coveting is. And the law became more clear to Paul, became alive in his mind. But or the, the sin became more clear to Paul and it became alive in his mind. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment or the law, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So the law shows us what sin is, right? And then sin, which is here personified as a master manipulator, weasels its way into the heart and mind of man and reproduces itself in every kind of manner. That's how sin uses the law against us. Now, as a kid, you might remember having either your mom or your dad, or maybe it was a grandparent, whoever you lived with, maybe tell you not to do something. Like, don't, don't touch that hot pot of water right there because you're going to get burnt, right? Don't stick your finger in that electrical socket because it's going to light you up. And what happened? <laughs> what happened? That's how I talk to my kids. <laughs> well, me, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm like, I gotta see how hot the pot is. I'm gonna touch the little. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I won't touch it again. And then I touch it again. Why? Because what happened was our parents inadvertently, unintentionally turned our attention towards the very thing that they didn't want us <laughs> to be attracted to. And now we're, it's irresistible. <laughs> Now that kind of experience goes all the way back to the garden, even before the written law. You might remember Adam and Eve and Eve, Eve being in the garden and, and Av, uh, Adam and Eve looking at their options. And God said, look, you can eat from all of these things that are here in the garden, except for that one thing right there. Don't touch that pot of boiling water, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? Sin comes slithering along. And sin, the serpent, says, Eve, did God really say that? Will you really die if you touch that tree of the knowledge of good and evil the way that he said you would die? And all of a sudden, sin and the temptation towards sin comes alive in Eve's heart, and she goes for it. She touches the pot of boiling water, and she gets burnt. And that's when the curse of sin and death came into humanity at that moment when we partook from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent sin was actually, was actually, you know, kind of speaking to Eve's desire to be godly. He says, don't you want to understand the difference between good and evil and be like God? He was, he was, he was trying to use something good, like adhering to the law. He was trying to use something good in order to manipulate her and take her out of the hands of God. 
And this is what has been happening for a long, long time. It's still happening today. And that's why I believe this chapter is going to be really helpful for you. So if you're not zoned in on what I'm talking about with the law right now, I really want to challenge you to lean in because this is helpful. Verse nine says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Sin deceived and killed me, basically. Not the law. The law didn't do that. I found that the very commandment, the law that was intended to bring life, the original purpose was to bring life, that it actually, because of sin, brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Paul is really taking a negative tone with the law, doesn't he? He's like, man, he's kind of like, man, the law, the law did this and the law did that. And through the law, death came. But we also see that he's trying to bring clarity. It's actually the way that sin is manipulating the use of the law in our hearts. And really this this feeling kind of correlates with the feeling that we've been seemingly getting from Paul throughout the whole of the book of Romans. Now, if you recall, throughout the first few chapters, we come across some scriptures where uh, it contained the, 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 the law in it. And we said, well, hold on, we're going to pass over that right now because we're not ready to crack that conversation open. And here we are, week seven, we're cracking the conversation about the law open. And I'm going to refer back to some of those scriptures that we passed over. So if you want, you can jot these, maybe just the reference down real quick. You don't have to write everything I'm saying down. That way you can go back and look at them. But in chapter three, verse 20, Paul said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, made right in his sight, since through the law, comes what? Knowledge of sin. Chapter three, verse 28 says, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Chapter four, verse 14 says, if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing. And the promise is worthless. And basically what he's saying, no, it's not through the law that we're heirs. It's through Christ Jesus that we're heirs. We are co-heirs in this inheritance, in this kingdom of God with Jesus. Chapter four, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Chapter five, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it almost seems like this contrast between grace and the law. Chapter six, verse 14 and 15, Paul asserts twice that believers are not under the law. In the same chapter that I'm talking to you out of today, chapter seven, in verse three, we're to be free from the law. In verse four, the believer has died to the law. In verse five, the law arouses sinful passions. In verse six, we have to be released from the law in order to walk in the newness of life. So again, what we're getting is this this impression that there's something wrong with the law and we need to be delivered from the law. And many people thought then, just like many people think now, that Paul is completely doing away with the law after all. It really does seem like Paul's been deconstructing the law, but he's not. That's not what he's doing in this. That's not what he's doing in all of this chapter or all of the Bible even. What he's been doing is deconstructing people's reasoning for trusting in the law in order to justify them before God. We can't trust in the law because it doesn't accomplish the work that Christ accomplished. So we don't put our trust in the law. We put our trust in Christ. So the law can't be all bad, can it? We hear all these things that sound so negative. It can't be all bad. Well, in verse 12, Paul's going to give us some clarity about his, his, his perspective on the law. He's going to bring some balance to this context. And he says, so then, here it is. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So the law isn't bad. 
okay? Let's leave with this today. The law is not bad. It's the sin that sprang to life and misused the law that's bad. So since that's true, we want to understand the law a little better. And it's good to know the purpose of the law. So one, the law showed God's will for how God's people are to live. And this especially came through the civil uh, law, which we know expired. That's no longer for us. The civil law is, is, is not something that we adhere to, but he did desire to give boundaries and, and, and uh, instructions. And he uses the other law, especially the moral law to do that now. But these boundaries and instructions are good. Boundaries and instructions are good. They provide order and peace. Now we may not realize that we need that. But most of us, if it all boiled down and there was lawlessness, you would be crying out for a king to bring order, to bring peace, to bring boundaries and instruction for good living. We don't want lawlessness in our, in our cities, in our nation, in this world. We surely don't want lawlessness in our own hearts. With three young kids, you know, I've been teaching my kids to brush their teeth. Now, my instruction or my command is ultimately to, to safeguard them from getting cavities and, you know, future root canals. And... I think it's a pretty big deal. They can't get that. They can't see beyond. They don't know anybody that's had a root canal. I know a bunch of y'all have been having root canals and been telling me about it. It's hard. I don't want a root canal. So I don't want my kids to have root canals. And, you know, kids really, not just mine, but any kids, they don't know that they need safeguarding until someone tells them, right? Now, kids, they don't always listen. And what happens? They get cavities. They get cavities. So, we can't plead ignorance if somebody told us what the consequence of not aligning with instructions and commandments are. We can't plead ignorance when somebody told us. And, and even if somebody didn't tell us, the consequences are still the same. If I'd never told my kids that they were going to get cavities, they'd still get cavities if they didn't brush their teeth because the consequences are the same. So if we break the law, Let's take this now and look at it from our perspective. The consequences are the same even if we plead ignorance. See, in chapter one of Romans, Paul says that there's none that are without excuse. No one is without excuse. So pleading ignorance doesn't hold up in a court of law. And God gave the law in order to make it clear for us so that we wouldn't have to plead ignorance. He wanted his instruction to be clear for not only Israel, but for his people today. So that's number one, the law showed God's will for his people. Number two, he wanted to display God's character and nature, his own character and nature, his perfection through the law. So he gave us a perfect law that you know that we could never live up to outside of, you know, in his grace and power, we could never adhere to the law. And, and we know that uh, when we look at the law and his perfect law, that it, it, it causes us to see ourselves as guilty and unrighteous. And that's important for us to know because if we don't ever see ourselves as guilty and unrighteous, then we'll never know that we have a need for the righteousness of Christ, right? So we see the contrast between his perfection and our imperfection. And what it does is it actually points us to Jesus. And that brings us to the third purpose of the law, which is that the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, a teacher, See, evil hijacked the heart of man and the law could not solve that problem in and of itself. But through the law, the moral, some civil for a period of time, and especially now the ceremonial, which has been fulfilled by Christ, God displayed the need for a sacrifice that will cover and pay for the sins of his people. And that's, man, we need to understand that. So the law is pointing us towards that reality. 
And God knew that the law would not fix the problem because no law does. You, you do know that you can't legislate morality, right? We can't legislate people into having a changed heart. You understand that? So when I was driving over here and I was breaking the law, not by much, but a little bit, it, it, it wasn't the speed limit sign, right? At first, that caused me to want to slow down. It was the cop that bent a U-turn. I'm thankful for our police officers, but I'm going to tell you what, I got a little apprehensive. Now, I love our police officers. We need law and order. But for me, at that moment, I was praying against him. <laughs> and then I saw the speed limit sign. I said, oh, okay, good, good. I, I forgot where I was at. I wasn't too far over. But the speed limit sign it might cause me to slow down. The police officer getting behind me, it might cause me to slow down. But did it, did it change the motivation of my heart? No. I was mad I couldn't speed. I was like, I want to bend corners at 60 miles an hour. Law doesn't change the heart. And y'all know that. Don't look at me like y'all don't break the law. All y'all break the law somehow. Golly. <laughs> While the law shows us what is right and wrong, it does not supply us with the power to do right or avoid wrong. And that's why we don't trust in the law. That's why we trust in the law from, in the one from whom the law comes. We trust in Jesus. We trust in, in the Father. And our inability to keep God's law perfectly points us to our need for a Savior who'd sacrifice himself to cover our sins, to rescue us from the sin that leads to death. That's the purpose of the law, to point us towards rescue and salvation. And Paul wants to help us see the law differently over the next few verses. You'll learn that the law is still very much a part of a believer's walk with Christ. It is. It's just as a little bit different than maybe you might have thought. I want to let you know this real quick. I want to almost give you a little freedom in, in the next few minutes. You need to understand that though there is a law and it is a perfect standard, and though we say that the spirit of God in us will help us adhere to the law, we are still in our mortal bodies. And there is and will continue to be an ongoing struggle with sin in the life of a follower of Jesus for the remainder of our days on earth. You need to, you need to understand that and accept that. Otherwise, you will find yourself in condemnation. And Paul's going to help us see this over the next few verses. In verse 12, um, we're reminded that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and, and righteous and good. And 13, he picks up and he says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, sin used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. He's saying that sin perverted the law and used it to bring death. And we know, as we mentioned before, it was originally intended to bring life. Verse 14, we know the law is spiritual. That when he uses the word law there, it's this word pneumatikos. It's a Greek word. It comes from the root word pneuma, like pneumatics, like a pneumatic tool, air, breath, it's, it's a reflection of the breath of God. He's saying the law is like the breath of God. It's spiritual. It's something that God gave himself, that he spoke to us. But I am unspiritual. I'm fleshly. And I'm sold as a slave to sin. Now, that might confuse you if you reference back to chapter 6 when we were saying we're no longer slaves of unrighteousness. We're slaves of righteousness, right? No longer slaves to sin. But then he says, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Well, what's he mean? Well, it's not about presently being a slave to sin. 
because we are slaves to righteousness, slaves to, to Jesus Christ, that's bond servants, willfully saying, I give all of myself, I surrender all to Jesus. What he is referring to is the weakness that all believers still share. The fact that we're all susceptible to broke, the brokenness that is still residing in our fallen mortal bodies. See, this is more about the flesh's desire to get this, to continuously sell us back on the slave market. There's, there's our flesh is almost like just kind of pulling against our spirit man. The, 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 the flesh and the spirit are waging war inside of us and the flesh is like, no, get back on that slave market. Let me send you back down the river. And that's not what God has for us. Verse 15, I see Paul almost getting kind of frustrated and maybe some of you might feel some of this frustration that Paul's feeling. He says, I don't do what I want to do. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You ever felt that way? I can just imagine him like, man, I, I just, I can't get it right. I know that I felt that tension in my walk for a long time. And maybe you're sitting in the seat right now and you're like, yeah, I'm struggling to get it right. Well, Paul's feeling the same. And that's good because Paul is conscious of the present dictator sin that is indwelling in his flesh, but he would not have that internal battle if there wasn't a spirit inside of him as well that's saying, no, there's another way. So if you're wrestling right now, that's good. The spirit of God is convicting you and trying to draw you, and trying to, to help you live according to his spirit. Verse 16, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. See, basically, when I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do, it proves that the law was needed, that it's good, right? Because I've, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. So I, we needed those boundaries and those standards set for us. Now, we as people, we have got to side with neither our feelings nor our own opinions of our of, of, of what our actions uh, and what, what is acceptable. We cannot side with our feelings and opinions. We need to agree with God, his law, his standard for living. And we need to submit ourselves to that. That's what he desires from us. In verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. Paul's not referring to the, the fact that there's no good in him because we know that Christ is in him. And if Christ is in us, then there is good in us. But he's saying in and of himself, there's no good in him. He's talking about his flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do is what I wind up doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. That almost sounds like that whole, well, the devil made me do it. Done it, you know? You kind of get that feeling? You know, and I get that. I, I, I get that we, we might want to say, as a matter of fact, go back to the garden. What, what did Adam say? She did it. And then what did she say? Hey, the devil made me do it, right? That, that's, that's what happened. That's, that's what we do. We play the victim. But I think that though Paul says, yeah, it's, it's the sin living in me, I don't think he's shirking off his responsibility. I think that that will be out of context because we know that Paul says, should we sin more that grace abounds? And he said, heavens, no. So we know when we take this statement in context with all of what Paul's saying, he's not endorsing our, our shirking off our personal responsibility. 
He's not saying, since sin made me do it, well, I can't help it, so I might as well keep on doing it. That is not what's happening here. He's saying more like, I know my enemy, my fleshy man, my sinful nature keeps rising up in me. I know my tendencies, and because I know my tendencies, in partnership with God, his Holy Spirit, I'm going to take responsibility. And that's what Paul wants us to get. Now remember, I'm going to repeat this again. I don't want you to fall into this place of condemnation. There is, and will continue to be, an ongoing struggle with sin in the life of a believer. We will continue to struggle. Galatians 5.17 says that the spirit and the flesh are at conflict with one another. So what do we do then in the midst of that conflict? We've got to own it. We've got to confess it. And we've got to get up, pick ourselves back up, but also allow God to pick us up by his grace. And we've got to move forward in repentance. And we've got to declare who we are as children of God over our lives on a regular basis so that the enemy can't put that lie back in your mind that you are a a slave to sin. But no, you're declaring, no, I'm a slave to righteousness. And though I may fall, the Lord will pick me up by his grace and I will continue to move forward as an overcomer. At the end of the day, though sin keeps rising up, I am righteous. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. He says, it's a law. It's like the law of gravity. You just, you can't escape it. It's a principle of life. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love his law, but I see another law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind. It's making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. It's a man who's broken. He's aware of his sin nature. He says, I'm wretched. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me from my own depravity? I've fallen short of the glory of God. Who is going to set me free? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, a slave to righteousness, but in my sinful nature, in my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. We do say thanks be to God because there is a solution. His name is Jesus. Now that just ended chapter seven, and that would be a difficult place for me to leave you because the last thing he said was, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And that begins to confuse us a little bit. So we're going to break into chapter eight for just a second. Y'all, y'all want a little hope out of the end of this message. Let me, let me point you to the next thing. This is what he says in chapter eight, and we're going to get there next week. But he says, therefore, there is no condemnation. And I'm not just talking about the emotional condemnation where you feel shame for your sin. There's no condemnation, meaning eternal consequence, meaning judgment, meaning being sent to hell. There is no condemnation condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh (laughs) to be a sin offering. You know, Jesus stepped off his throne. He gave up for just a moment that position so that he could condescend and come down and walk amongst us and be experience the same temptation that we experience 
and ultimately to carry the weight of our sin and the weight of the consequence of our sin as a sin offering. And so by doing that on the cross, by spilling his blood on Calvary, by going into the grave and defeating sin and death and by being raised from death in the newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh. But now this is how you end. But we live according to the spirit. Look, we're spiritual beings. We happen to be in these earthen vessels, but we are spiritual beings. And God is calling us to live according to the spirit. And it's not about trying harder. It's not about checking things off the list. It's about leaning into Christ, into his word, into his presence. It's about knowing God and knowing him intimately. God is the primary instigator in that relationship, which is really exciting because it would be really hard for us to throw a lasso up around God and bring him down to us. But no, he said, no, I'm coming to you. I'm at the doorstep of your heart and I want you. I desire relationship with you. And all you have to do is lean in. Now's your chance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so many of us in this room right now. We've given our lives to you. We've said yes. We've put our trust in Jesus. We've been walking in the best way that we know how. Maybe we've, maybe we've sacrificed some standards in our lives thinking that that's what grace is. Maybe we've aligned ourselves around some other thinking that doesn't align with your thinking. God, would you forgive us? God, would you forgive us? Restore to us the joy of your salvation, that we would find freedom in your grace, knowing that it's you that the law was pointing to Jesus and knowing that it's you that desires for us to live in the fullness of life, to live an abundant life. God, would you return to us peace as we lean into you? Would you fill us with your spirit fresh and anew? Would you draw us back to your word, stir in us a love for your commands? God, not just the 10 commandments, God, but that which summarizes those 10 commandments, the fact that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love people. God, help us to love you. Help us to love others. Let us fulfill that law in that way as you have fulfilled the law in our own lives. Thank you, Jesus, for residing in the hearts of your, your sons and daughters. And for those of you that are in this room right now that don't know Jesus, it's very simple. The gospel is simple. He loves you. He made a way for you out of sin, out of death, into healing, forgiveness, and life. And all you have to do is put your trust in the work of Jesus. He died for you. He rose again from the grave, proving that he is God and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could raise you to the newness of life too. And if you want to be made into a new person by the power of the Holy Spirit, now's your chance. You just say, yes, Lord, I want that. Jesus, I trust you. Forgive me for my sin. I'm leaning into you. Lead me by your spirit. Guide me. Let this life being offering unto you. I sacrifice it all. I lay it all down. I surrender right now. For the rest of the days of all my life, I want to live giving you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Northwood Church is one church with multiple locations. Uh, we have locations in Gulfport, Wiggins, and Long Beach, and we'd love to see you there. If you enjoyed this message and want to get more info on who we are, just head over to northwood.tv. And once you're there, you can check out all our past sermons and all the things that we're doing in South Mississippi. And even to, to give to support those efforts of reaching more people. Be sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with everything happening around Northwood Church. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you soon.